0: This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brehm. The World Bank hasn't always made loans to education. Post World War II, it focused mainly on infrastructure. Even when it did start lending to education in the 1960s, it used the idea of manpower planning the process of estimating the number of people with specific skills required for completing a project. Only in the 1970s did the World Bank begin to think of education in terms of rates of return. That is, the cost-benefit calculation that uses expected future earning from one's educational attainment. The introduction of rates of return inside the World Bank was no easy process. The internal fights by larger-than-life personalities were the stuff legends are made from. Yet these disputes often go unnoticed, hidden behind glossy reports and confidence. Today, Steve Heinemann takes us back in time when he first introduced rates of return to the World Bank. He discusses how he used them to his advantage and how he ultimately lost his job because of them.
1: I brought economic rate of return into the bank because I needed a weapon so that we could diversify ourselves beyond manpower forecast. So I used it as a weapon. But when that paper was published, then the then the memo uh, objecting to the education policy paper, uh, I was essentially removed from my job.
0: Steve Heinemann is professor emeritus of international education policy at Peabody College, Vanderbilt University. He served the World Bank for 22 years, between 1976 and 1998. So, Steve Heinemann, welcome to Fresh Head.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: So, I want to talk to you today about the political project of human capital, not necessarily the, the economic side of what it did and, you know, how it changed the conception of labor and capital or anything like that. So... You worked in the World Bank, and maybe mm-hmm. that's where we should start, or maybe even earlier because you were talking about Jean Bowman, mm-hmm. and you learned two things through her, so maybe mm-hmm. we should start there.
1: well uh, I took three courses in the economics of education uh, with her. I also studied with her husband, C. Arnold Anderson, and with Philip Foster at the University of Chicago, and they had written um uh a paper on uh, manpower planning and the uh, paper was very controversial and it was suggesting that manpower planning was um, inaccurate uh, and uh, sometimes counterproductive to education because it all focused Uh, assistance in areas of specific skills.
0: So what was manpower planning just like? Very Manpower
1: planning is a way of trying to forecast where there would be employment in specific skills, you know, in plumbers and carpenters and engineers, basically. Uh, It had nothing to do with generalized skills or general skills. It had nothing to do with basic education, nothing to do with general secondary education, and nothing to do, in fact, with... um, uh, humanities or any of the uh, social sciences. It was uh, basically confined to how many engineers are we going to need? Uh, and it had several different techniques. And one technique was to look at comparisons of the ratio of uh, engineers to uh, manual laborers in a field of industry, such as coal mining in Poland and UK and in, let's say, Russia and find out that the ratio was different, so that might justify more investment in engineering education and to bring their ratio up to some comparable. That was manpower for us. So it would be
0: similar, like if you were building a road and you would say, we need this amount of concrete or asphalt and we need... It it was
1: pretty much like that. And uh, as it got applied in development uh, by the World Bank and others, uh, it was... um, Based on the amount of infrastructure investment, so if, let's say you build a road and it's 25 miles of road, question is, well, how many engineers are you going to need to build that 25 sure. And And for maintenance, how many tractor drivers, how many steamroll drivers? I mean, it seems have? like a legitimate yeah. question. It is a legitimate yeah. question, but it's a very tiny fraction of what we mean by human capital. Mm. Human capital is so much broader, and that was the line of... Um, of argument, first brought in by Schultz with his classic study on um, on accounting for growth in the US uh, economy over a period long period of time and finding out that uh, a large uh, portion of that growth could be attributed to greater education, general education. And then that was um, advanced both in uh, London and in, in University of London and at Chicago by Mary Jean Bowman by uh, pioneering um, the economic rate of return methodologies and that provided a technique for estimating uh, in quantitative terms how much um, one could expect both in private uh, benefit and in public benefit uh, from an investment in education regardless of where that investment was made whether it's made in engineers or whether it's made in primary school graduates. So it was much more applicable to human capital than manpower planning. And that's what I learned at Chicago.
0: And so it was Mary Bowman, for you, that was sort of advocating these ideas and wrote this controversial paper critiquing manpower planning? Is that what she was doing? Yes,
1: yes, yes. It was published. uh, It's a very famous paper. uh, It was published in, I think, 65 or 66, and I think she was co-authored with uh, C. Arnold Anderson. It was Anderson, her husband. And her husband, yeah, who was professor of sociology
0: and big in comparative ed. Huge, <laughs> yeah, yeah, huge. <laughs>
1: but both of them, they were very interesting people. They were married. She had a joint appointment in the Department of Economics as well as Education. He had a joint appointment in department of, in, uh, sociology huh. as well as uh, education. So they both held joint appointments. They were a power couple. Right. And they were really, really interesting. So they wrote this classical kind of um, analysis of manpower forecasting, which is very critical. But at that time, every single country in the world, including all the European countries, used manpower forecasting in their economic planning. In the first uh, meeting of the uh, OAS in Africa, or Organization of African States in 1961 in Addis Ababa, every country that came came with, a, came with a plan for the development of their education system justified on manpower forecasting. So it was the dominant methodology used in, right. in, a, in development. And when I joined uh, the World Bank, which was in April of 1976. Uh, it uh, manpower forecasting had a virtual monopoly on right. uh, 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 on the uh, analytics of of of, um, of human capital. That's the only methodology that was used. And the chief economic uh, you know advisor in the field of education was Manny Zimmerman, and he was a manpower forecaster. Right. And he had grave doubts about all this you know practicality of uh, economic rates of return.
0: So how many years? So, I mean, Mary Bowman and C. Arnold Anderson, they write this major critique of manpower planning, right. manpower forecasting. Right. You joined the bank in 76.
1: So there was a decade involved. between the time that that article was published and the date on which I, I joined the World Bank. So at least a decade, maybe more. So it had uh, become, there had been some experiments, I think... Um, Carnoy uh, uh, did so. Carnoy and uh, a um, gosh, I wish I can remember his name, but a, um, I think he came from Finland. Uh, um, did some work in Kenya on economic rates of return uh, for the bank and trying to. But the, the basic argument of the bank that it was impractical. How could you get all this data? Where did you get it? How did you know it's valid? And they they could do manpower forecasting much easier. So uh, it it was, uh, it, it, they, they would not allow any alternative methodology in the World All Bank. Right. So, but it, it was very consistent with the way the World Bank got into education, which is in 1962, the first loan to Tunisia. They saw education, they were allowed to justify loaning to, to developing countries on the grounds of making their infrastructure investments work. Through, education th- through, through engineering education
0: uh, okay, so the you, you, you build has, a, you build this, a this road, you
1: build a road in Zambia. you've got to have engineers uh, to both build it and maintain it. So if you've got X numbers of miles of highway uh, and it involves a you know, 100 million dollars, uh, how many more engineers will you need? That's how the bank got involved right. in education. Right. So manpower forecasting was used as the engine to justify those investments in engineers in Zambia and wherever else. Right. And you
0: investing in things, infrastructure that they've done historically.
1: Correct. So every project between uh, 1962 and 1980, the time of the they. World Bank uh, education policy paper Mm. of 1980, uh, the bank was restricted to lending for vocational and technical education and one little expansion in secondary education in what's called diversified schools, meaning secondary schools with wood shop, metal shop, and domestic science for (laughs) you-know-who.
0: Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) (laughs) every, Every secondary. So a country could not... Borrow money for secondary education, unless they built those workshops. Including, uh, I was my first experience was as a consultant before I joined the World Bank. And they sent me to Somalia, and they said, "Well, evaluate the, you know, the effectiveness of these uh, diversified schools." And I said, "They're crazy. I mean, they had, You call them the, These are practical, quote, practical workshops, and Somalia didn't have any wood, so they had to import the wood from Italy." in order to have something for the kids in secondary school to work on because there was no no there wasn't enough or the right kind of wood so it it more than it was two and a half times the unit expenditure of a general secondary education so that so made no
0: sense in it, your sort of from your made training. no sense.
1: they brought in a new director whose name was Akilu Habte uh, best boss i ever had in my life and he came from Ethiopia and he was um, kind of rescued by Robert McNamara and uh, made the first uh, non-European, first African director of the World Bank. And um, I had a private talk with him about it and I said, look, we'll never be able to loan for primary education. I was told by, the, by Ravi Gahalti, who was the uh, chief economist for the Sub-Saharan Africa from India, and he said, we'll never loan for a primary education in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, first of all it's all dispersed you can't you can't uh, monitor the projects you don't know how they're being implemented and besides uh, primary education is a local uh, it's a a local kind of a recurrent expenditure and you expect the government to do that we can't come in so when I heard that and I was frozen out of uh, justifying uh, lending of the bank's role in primary or secondary education. I went to my boss at Cleveland and I said, well, we have, to, we have to do something, what would you recommend? I said, well, there's a guy in London who teaches at the London School of Economics, George Sakharopoulos, and uh, he was trained at Chicago and he, was, he, he worked with uh, Schultz and he worked with Mary Jean Bowman and he's a promoter of economic rates of return and I think we should consider him as a employee of our department. And uh, so Akilu said to me, would you please go to London and talk to him? Huh. So I did.
0: And so did you know him from your connection um, to Chicago?
1: I knew of him. I had never met him before. So was he before, was he your he was senior? Before, he was my senior. He was right. older than I, and so I had never met him. But I had read things, and I think maybe, uh, anyway, I had heard quite a lot about him. So I knew of him right, quite right. well. But I had never met him, so I went went to London and I called him up. And I mean, he knew I was coming, of course. And <laughs> and I had uh, lunch with him and I met his wife Elena, uh, who was a medical uh, doctor, medical researcher, I think, a liver liver uh, researcher in, in London Hospital. And I explained the political situation. I said, would you consider working for the World Bank? I'm not offering you the job. I'm speaking on behalf of my director. Uh, would you consider it if we if we went the next step? And he said he would. So we went the next step, and he was hired, and he was brought in as the chief of a division for education research uh, at the bank. What in year was this? This is probably 78 or 79. Okay, so a few years after you arrived. Oh, yeah, I, I, this is my first... You know, I mean, you know, I I skipped one sort of story. I don't know if I told it in the article, but my first time I ever attended a decision meeting on an education project when I worked for the uh, World Bank, was probably April, May, May or June of 1976, and it was a project in Algeria, it was on vocational education. And... Uh, the division chief was a very tough guy, Jack Stewart, really tough Irish, you know. And they had done a lot of lot of work. And I said, you know, how do we know that these just these um, vocational schools are justified? And he said, well, we have a manpower plan. And I said, you know, but manpower plan doesn't consider costs. Okay, they don't consider benefits. They have no costs, and benefits are not part of their equation. And I said, but rate of return is. Do we have any economic rate of return? He says. Rate of return evidence doesn't exist. We don't need it, and that's and I just studied it. I just right. come from You're Chicago. Like I, this is graduate. I've been I've been you know in the house of the World Bank for for a minute and a half, <laughs> and I'm told that everything I studied at Chicago didn't exist. That's when I knew we had a problem. Right. Okay. Now, did so, Mary
0: Jean Bowman prepare you for? No, no, like, she, like, I,
1: uh, not at all. Uh, she don't think she knew anything about the World Bank. Actually, uh, she was above the pay grade in a certain <laughs> sense. Uh, but there is a story as to how she got involved in the bank, you know, explain that in just a second. Sure. So I went back, that's when I went to a and I said, we've got to, we've got to do something here. So clearly, was one of the smartest bosses. So he first sent me out to try and feel out George sacropolis Then he landed George Zacharopoulos. And George Zacharopoulos got into a fight with Manny Zimmerman. Within 10 minutes of him joining. They were at loggerheads, and it was like watching two whales go at it. I mean, it was enormous, very entertaining, but just what we needed. I mean, it was, uh, they were, you know, we didn't bring in George. George is very articulate, as you know. Uh, and very convinced, and often very convincing. Mm. Uh, so we had two giants uh, fighting and out over what methodology is like most. An of intellectual debate inside. Big the time. It was enormous. I mean, that
0: often gets lost when you people talk uh, it, about it the was, bank. Y- it,
1: they have no idea. Yeah. Uh, people from outside the bank really underestimate the amount of intellectual debate that right. occurs within it. And and when you're involved in it, as I was, and privileged to be. It's exciting as hell, because it helps to determine the rest of the world in certain respects. So all this is going on, so Cleelieu knew that he not only wanted economic rates of return, but he wanted to justify it with a paper that would be approved by uh, all of the executive directors of the World Bank. But before he asked for money to do this paper, he asked for this a study of, of the World Bank's analytics And there he went to his old friend at the Ford Foundation, and they put up some of the money, and they had a commission to study how the World Bank does its analytics. And on that commission was Mary Jean Bowman, very prominently. And uh, Ward, Champion Ward, was the director of that commission. Who was a, a senior member of the Ford Foundation. And um, and it was it was a set-up job. And it was a very important report. Who picked the people? A clue on the advice of me and on the advice of George Zachary. Okay, so I mean, so, and on the advice of the Ford Foundation. And you sort of knew what you were doing. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. I mean, he picked people from around the oh, world uh, from people from Chile and Brazil and Thailand. And, and these were all very prominent people. Right. Very prominent people. But in terms of the intellectual power about the methodology, Mary Jean Bowman came in with her funny hat and her... And she wore funny hats. All the time. She was a gracious lady, a gracious lady. And she was always a little dizzy, but when she spoke, it was very articulate. I would
0: imagine the World Bank at that time was quite male.
1: And very male, all white shirt and tie right. all, all the time. But Mary Jean Bowman could take them. You know, She had them... Uh, you know, in a in the palm of her hand, because she could speak economics like nobody else. So, so, so she
0: is sitting on this panel uh, doing a review of yeah, the and, analytics of the world
1: bank. Right, and that review came out recommending a diversification of uh, analytic of analytics uh, to justify lending in the field of human capital, and then on the basis of that report. Then Aklilu financed the generation of the 1980 education policy paper, which argued for the World Bank becoming involved in primary education, secondary education, uh, general higher education, education research, and a variety of other things that never would have been uh, justified under manpower forecasting. It broke the dam, I mean. Uh, But that started us on a path that we never would have been able to do without Sakropolis in the early days and Mary Jane Bowman and the whole emphasis coming out of uh, Chicago.
0: And it seems like that happened so 78 Sacropolis comes and in 80 that policy paper gets written. So fast. We're talking fast.
1: Re- this is really fast. And, I mean, and it Bank would never to... have happened without Aklilu Hapte. Right. The first African uh, director of the World Bank from Ethiopia uh, who was a blue blood himself could talk to power, was listened to by McNamara, had a direct access to McNamara, and there, anyway, how can you argue with an African that we're not going to get involved in primary and secondary education? Okay, are right. not, not, not going to fly. Right. Okay, so and he can, speaks with such credibility uh, that uh, he won the day.
0: And then he had was could build scientific evidence now to sure. sort of support that. Uh, so.
1: So, I, I was able to do what we were, we were financing things called tracer studies, which are studies of graduates of institutions into the labor market. And we had several going, and I took, uh, I, I wrote two papers, one on India and one on Malawi, uh, using economic rate of return evidence. And those were highly debated in the bank uh, and later published. In fact, uh, uh, when I turned in the paper on India, Uh, I turned it over to my, uh, the chief economist and even, um, anyway, I I will remember his name in a minute. And he said, well, you better let the boss read this, Aklilu. So Aklilu read it. And he said to me, I'm not going to send this uh, to the uh, India country department because they'll destroy it. I'm going to send it to the vice president of the South Asia region who will read it and he'll give us his opinion. And the next day i had on my desk uh, a piece of paper with a copy of my paper on india uh, in the in the handwritten note from the vice president of south asia trumping all the layers saying damn fine paper we need to publish it that's all he said and that was using rate of return evidence on india
0: for the first time
1: for the first time ever and we were we had been frozen out of India because India for a variety of reasons, India didn't think that they could learn anything from the World Bank because they had so many economists of their own and they're very proud people and they you know they had other they had other things they wanted to the bank. But uh, that got that paper published in the, in the South Asia region, and that broke the dam in terms of analytics. And then I did another one on Malawi. Which also used our own evidence, so those two things started the started the economic rate of return. And once
0: that dam broke, I mean, did more economists get hired They'd ha- or using? He, oh the sure. Oh yeah.
1: Oh yeah. And and it, and George was very busy in his own way, of uh, raising this question time and time and time and time again, uh, using available data, and then uh, under. Uh, bank's evaluation components making sure that economic evidence was collected so that it became much sort of came relatively common by the by the late 1980s it was relatively common to have economic rate of return evidence which showed as as George uh, is very uh, talented at summarizing uh, higher rates of return to primary, uh, higher rates of return to secondary, then higher, and, and very low rates of return to vote. And that became the kind of mantra mm. of the bank uh, in the 1980s. Did it begin
0: to replace manpower planning? Like oh, it yes. used to be manpower planning was the manpower, mantra. Man, by, the, by
1: 1990, manpower planning probably wasn't used at all in the World Bank. Yes. So between Let's say, it, it 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 fell by age. fell completely by the wayside.
0: Um, I mean, and then it basically got replaced by a whole another idea that, I mean, was there big debates on human capital on rates of return?
1: Well, the answer is yes, and that's how I got involved. So I switched sides.
0: Ah, what side? Which well, side? Well, I
1: brought economic rate of return right. into the bank because. I needed a weapon so that we could diversify ourselves beyond manpower forecast. So I used it as a weapon.
0: So you saw the problems of manpower planning, and you said, this is a tool, this rates of return is a gonna, tool we, to get me to not have to use right. a methodology you disagreed with. Correct. Okay. Then,
1: you know, in the 1980s, a lot of countries were becoming middle income. I mean, there was Thailand. Uh, there was Brazil. but huge economies, India itself, of Indonesia. And then in 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down, 26 new countries mm. joined the World Bank when the Soviet Union imploded. And I was put in charge of those countries, all 26, from Hungary to Tajikistan. And these are all countries that had universal primary education, universal literacy, universal secondary education, and where females made up Um, 50% of all uh, the graduates from secondary school and uh, in some other professions uh, were even overrepresented. So the problems of Malawi did not apply to Russia. And we were writing a a policy paper and the bank was going to, uh, George was by that time, had been made the senior advisor to the senior vice president. So now
0: he's your boss. You
1: know no, 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 he's not my boss. I didn't re- report it to him. Okay. He was in another branch of the World Bank, oh, okay. in the policy-making branch, but he had control over all education policy that would go to the board. And as a reviewer of our education policy paper of of, of that, when it was 1990, 1991, that we were developing in the education department. He insisted on having a monopoly of economic rates of return and that the results would drive our lending priorities so that we would not be loaning for higher education, we would not be loaning for vocational education, we would only be loaning for primary or sometimes secondary education. Where there's the greatest rate of return. That's what he said. And I'm representing Russia and Hungary. And And they don't uh, need that. They don't need need that. And I realized that if that policy paper becomes the uh, standard argument of the World Bank, I lose my clients. I lose any interest in the World Bank. And so for me, it's a struggle. So I gather my colleagues together, Ralph Harbison in Eastern Europe, Wadi Adald in West Africa, uh, and we had a little uh, talk ourselves at a retreat, and we decided to fight the policy paper. And we decided to fight it in such a way that uh, they will never agree to pass it without our permission. So um, how did you do that? Well, we wrote a memorandum, it's quoted in that paper. Okay, so you can go to the paper, you can read what we wrote. And we uh, had it secretly signed by the division chiefs in charge of education. And I don't know how many we had, like by that time, let's say 18 division chiefs that were in one way. And we had like 15 of them signed a protest uh, together. And we sent, and I sent it to every vice president in the bank, including my boss, and the place lit up. I mean, it just, we were at war. And the war was them or us. You're, you know, you, you put that policy paper, we're, and we, you're going to sacrifice our interests. So George has never forgiven me, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but we were at war. And I knew. I mean, I knew that. I mean, you've read three papers of mine. The first paper was on uh, economics of education. Right. Now that that was about economic raise of return, and I didn't. And uh, that was uh, first presented to UNESCO, uh, and they asked. They loved the paper, of course, because UNESCO always. Was hostile to the World Bank interpreting economic rates of return. I mean, right. Always it from sort the of beginning,
0: narrowed the idea of education. Well,
1: right, it, it became me- mechanistic and. Yeah. Um, So when I presented that paper, they asked uh, what I was going to do with it. And I said, well, I, I think I'd like to publish it. And they asked whether they could publish it in Prospects. And I said, yes, yes, you can. So actually what I did is I let me think about it. I went home. I had three children who I was raising at that time and one my son, Peter, who was about 10 years old, and then Alice was eight, and then little, little Julie was about two or three. And I sat him around the table, and I said, if I publish this paper, I'll be fired. And I wasn't kidding.
0: And could they comprehend that?
1: Peter, well, they, I said, here's what it would mean for you. It would mean that I'd have to find a new job. You'd, have, you'd probably have to change schools. We'd probably have to sell our house. We might have to leave the Washington area and go someplace else. What should I do? Peters, Peter's, get him, dad. <laughs> he had no so And Allison, I don't know. And Julie said, like, mm.
0: <laughs> so, but uh, it was
1: serious. I knew I would yeah, be yeah. fired. I knew I would be fired because George had a monopoly on the interpretation of economic evidence. And I was uh, at war with him. So, with that paper was published, then the then the memo uh, objecting to the education policy paper uh, I was essentially removed from my job. So uh, how
0: did that happen? Who removed you?
1: Like, her name was Maris O'Rourke. They had hired Maris O'Rourke from she was a, a kind of right-wing uh, darling from New Zealand, never having worked on development before and she, uh, she pushed the fact that I would be uh, pushed out. So I was taken from my position as division chief in charge of a region uh, to make an an advisor, which they paid me, uh, but I had no power. So I spent another year in the bank and then retired.
0: And then you left on your own. You I
1: left guess. on my own in 1998. So and essentially, I was fired from the bank. Uh, fired
0: without being fired.
1: Right. It was, it was the way they do it. It was very nice because I didn't do anything wrong. I mean, whether my you know, I didn't publish anything that was confidential. I simply went to war uh, within the bank. And uh, they can't fire you for that for speaking up and speaking the truth, so they looked at how long I'd worked there, which is 22 years, and they said, "Well, he's getting out of date, he's not up to date. let's you know, <laughs> let's you know clean house." So they, the they ga- so they gave me an enormous amount of money. And the moment I left the bank, I joined a consultant firm earning a, the same salary I, I earned in the bank. <laughs> and did very well for two years, and and then I was invited by Vanderbilt to be a professor. But the lesson for me, the lesson is rather personal. All of us uh, at one stage or another, many of us perhaps, are faced with the possibility that the institution that we work for, that we love and are loyal to, may be antithetical to, um, to our profession, may be doing harm. And I'm, I'm an educator, and I've been an educator since I was in the Peace Corps in Malawi in 1967. And I believe in schools and I believe in primary schools, but I also believe in higher education and I believe in vocational education. I believe in many forms of education, and I don't believe in ideology. And what we had become is it, it was a method that we needed, but it became a monopoly. Mm. And whenever you have a method becoming a monopoly, you have distortions. And the distortions were going to ruin our relationship with Russia and all these other uh, very important borrowers.
0: So did the relationships with the bank and those new countries that just became members of the World Bank, were relationships ruined?
1: They they would have been. They would have been. If we were limited, if we couldn't loan to China for engineering education, we would not have had a relationship with China in education. If we couldn't uh, help... Uh, Russia and other parts of Eastern Europe with higher education reform, we would not have uh, uh, we would not have uh, had a role at all. Mm-hmm. So you know, my job was to make it possible for us to be flexible and to and to interpret economic rates of return in the, in the, the legitimate way, uh, which is to say, there, it's it's a guide. Uh, but there are many other factors, and in, in, in there's efficiency factors, there's public interest factors, there's demand factors, all kinds of factors that you can use, all good economics, right. by the way. Uh, that aren't ne- uh, necessarily part of the equations so of the economic rate of return. So,
0: are you saying all those other factors basically, when Sacropolis won this war? Yeah, he he had he had out. no
1: interest. He said no interest uh, in uh, anything other than he he was an ideologue. He had so no quote. interest in anything other than economic rates of return right. based on monetary estimates right. so and uh, anything non-monetary. He he, uh, he which Bowman used to pioneer, by the way. Bowman always pioneered both monetary and non-monetary benefits and she was adamant about the importance of non-monetary benefits. Acropolis was not. He said you oh, can't measure it. So how how do you know? I mean, right. how how can you compare, you know, how can you pair good feeling and good citizenship uh, with uh, salaries? And he said you can go to and the the virtue of an economic rate of return to education is that you can talk somewhat in parallel terms with a investment in highways or ports or agriculture or industry, and that's very important. I mean, that's really helpful right. to education, right. and I don't I don't regret bringing those um, that style into the bank at all, or into general economic development dialogue at all. Uh, but you have to be careful how you interpret
0: them. Yeah. Was Zakharopoulos an ideologue while at the London School of Economics, or was he always? You know, ideologue I, I, I make him one? He's like very a, he's very you know a,
1: he's very smart guy, but he became a one pony show.
0: And but because of the World Bank, like because of the position he was in, that it, sort of it became a the, way to gain. The power big out.
1: argument about bringing Zakharopoulos into the bank is, it was Jean-Pierre Gillard who made this argument. That was the name I yes. had. Uh, uh, he said. He's, he's too narrow. He's, he, all he cares uh-huh. about is uh, economic rates of return. And I went to bat for him. Oh, no, no, no. He's written this on equity. And, on. <laughs> and so... Uh, but in fact, he was. Uh, in fact, he was. <laughs> or became. I mean, uh, right. uh, but it was his claim to fame. And, and, and I, as an editor of the International Journal of Education, you know, I use him all the time as, yeah, a, yeah. as, a, as a reviewer. And he, he's very flippant. And he makes a decision within two-tenths of a nanosecond, but he's often right about, you know, he'll look in the methodology so this guy doesn't know what he's talking about because he forgot A and B and C. So I use him for that. I don't use him to make judgments on what kind of policies, what directions you should go, but uh, on technical terms, he's very good.
0: So you leave the World Bank? Saccharopoulos is now sort of quote-unquote king to return, dominate conversation. Uh, he, and does it he, continue he, this way? No,
1: and, and, uh, it continued for a very short time, for a very short time. Maris O'Rourke was fired uh, within a year after I left. Uh, th- since I left, the bank has now published three or even four policy papers on higher education, justifying their interest in higher education. And so those papers have become kind of the mechanism by which the bank gets around Zakharov this argument. And then George was forced into retirement and he he left the bank. So the bank today has had, they went through a decade of trying to um, repair the damage, but they have, and they are as adamant today about uh, investing in higher education uh, as any institution. But
0: they still Uh, use rate of returns to justify...
1: Occasionally. Occasionally. Uh, but never liked it, and certainly they use all kinds of new evidence, so a lot of randomized trials, a lot of cost-benefit analysis, uh, a lot of argument on the basis of um, skills that that are developed by human capital that are non-monetary. Right. So th- I I won the war.
0: Right. You lost the job, but you won the war. I won the war. Right. And so, what do you make of this human capital project, which is relatively new? Have you looked at it and analyzed um,
1: it in any way? I think it's, 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 it's a kind of a soft weapon. Mm-hmm. It's not a rate of return weapon. It's right. a kind of, look, and I, I buy it. I, I have my own dimensions to it. Uh, these days I, I, I talk a lot about the corruption of educational institutions. I talk about the cost of that. I'm, I've developed an interest in uh, faith and faith-based education, uh, as a, other than state education, as a way, and, and low cost private schools, uh, and the importance of listening to uh, people's demand for what kind of schools they want. Mm-hmm. I'm paying a lot of attention now to the content of education and what kids learn, mm-hmm. and the attitudes they pick up. So, human capital is interpreted as monetary returns, I think, is um, it's run its Gamut, I think, uh, and there's a lot of things that contribute to um, economic growth. A lot of ripple effects of human capital investments that we don't yet understand about uh, how uh, jobs are found, how networks work, uh, how people become more adaptable, mm-hmm. how they find jobs in a in an in an environment in which uh, people will not have lifetime careers and in which they'll have. Uh, jobs will. They may. Uh, every one of us will be, you know, private uh, kind of contractors and move from job to job. All of those um, uh, benefits of going to school and going to school with um, with intelligent, fast, uh, interesting colleagues. Uh, we have yet to fully explore. Right.
0: But yet, when I talk to students and, and parents, it's always, I want my child to go to school, to go to the best university, because yeah. he or she will get yeah. a better job. Right? It's still yeah. put in those monetary well, terms. Well, I, I think
1: that's the most popular way of putting mm-hmm. it, and it certainly is uh, understood by... But I'm on the board of, of the Putney School in Putney, Vermont, a progressive school, uh, and that school trains people uh, to be adaptable and to... Uh, have a wide variety of skills, some of which are monetary, many of which are not, uh, but which will make them adaptable and happier in their lives. And that kind of education is now becoming very interesting uh, in China. There, and, and a lot of people in Japan are, are worried about the kinds of um, what you call, let's call it a paradigm, of reasoning for, for education, and they think it's not enough. So uh, this, this, the shoe has not yet dropped on why you invest in schools. And and, uh, I think you'll find when it does drop, there'll be a lot of reasons and not just the kind of uh, typical one that you just recited.
0: Steve Heineman, thank you as always for chatting today. Really a pleasure. I learned a lot. And so thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed.
1: My pleasure, too.
0: Steve Heineman is Professor Emeritus of International Education Policy at Peabody College, Vanderbilt University. I spoke with Steve at the annual Comparative and International Education Society conference held in San Francisco earlier this year. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Pong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Aktas is our researcher, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.